Well, thank you all so much for being here. If you've never met me before, my name is Joe, and I get to lead our high school and young adult ministries at the chapel. And uh, so glad that you're here with us on the Labor Day weekend. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Charles is talking about uh, you know communion and how some things in Scripture are very black and white, that Jesus tells us, hey, do this, and here's how you do it. And I would say that in the book of Revelation, there are some things that are probably, they don't seem very black and white, some things that are very confusing. And so we're going to talk about a few of those things today. But then at the end, I want to give you some very clear things that we can do as followers of Jesus as well, too. And so um, you're here on a great day. It's, uh, we're studying Revelation 20. We're going to be talking about hell and about judgment and about Satan. And there's families and kids in the room today, so <laughs> I'm already sweating. I don't know if having to do this message was a promotion or disciplinary action uh, on my part, but um, I, we're going to walk through this together. So last week we looked at chapter 19 and the long-awaited return of Jesus, and we, you know we responded with the resu- with the resounding hallelujah. We were in the Sandusky campus last week, and and Pastor Todd was leading us in this and to respond of hallelujah. And I'm going to be honest, like Sandusky on a Saturday night, they were a little quiet. So this. I like Norwalk on a Sunday morning, especially first service. You're getting your coffee. Everybody seems a little bit more lively today, so hope you're with me this morning. But um, So last week, we talked about the return of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, um, and his armies. They were on their white horses, and the armies um, that were aligned, when they went to do battle with the armies that were aligned under the Antichrist, the influence of Satan, were defeated in the battle called Armageddon, and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they were thrown into hell, which we'll talk about later. And in our next, in next week, in our study of Revelation chapter 21 is also going to be great. We're going to look at Jesus bringing heaven to earth. But today, Revelation 20, where a, where a question that is found through all, through all of Scripture and a question that we wrestle in our own heart, this question, how long, O Lord, how long will you let evil and wrongdoing have its way, that is answered. And I think, for me at least, that question has become more acute over the past couple years, especially over the past couple weeks. When you think about what happened in Afghanistan, and maybe you were close with Max, the young man from this area of Ohio who lost his life. Maybe you knew him, you knew his friends, you knew his family. Um, You understand how acute the pain of evil in our world is. So we ask that question. And we find that answer in Revelation 20, that evil in all its forms is gone. It is defeated forever, preparing the way for the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to read all 15 verses of chapter 20. We're going to read it in segments. And on the way, we're going to ask some important questions. We're going to ask these questions. Who is the devil or Satan? You know, for some of you, that idea of the devil, right, it seems crazy. It's, it's legend. It's, it's something reserved for far side cartoons, you know. Um, but I don't want you to write that idea off so easily because I think that that can be an intellectually lazy approach to this. Because if you believe in God and you trust the words of Scripture and if you trust that Jesus is God and that his words are also trustworthy... <clears throat> Well, then there is a significant portion of of Scripture, of Jesus' words, that talk about Satan, that talk about the devil. And I think our approach can either be to minimize his existence, to sort of write it off, which is exactly what he would want, 
right? Because Satan is a deceiver, and it says when he appears, he appears as an angel of light. I think when we think of, the, of Satan, we think of, you know, red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a tail, but uh, I don't think it would be so obvious. The other thing that we can do is to give him too much credit, right? And to blame the devil for things that we do, right? Oh, the devil made me do it. Like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Might have just been you, right? And, and so I think our approach can either be to minimize it or, or to, to give him too much credit. So we have to go to scripture to get an accurate view. And in Revelation 20, <clears throat> we understand that, that Satan comes to an end. And we're going to ask another question. Why, sorry, here we go. Why a thousand years, all right? The millennium of Christ is only mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, and it's often debated, so let's discuss that today. What about the great white throne? What is this? You know, uh, this, is, this is Judgment Day, not, not, the, not the Terminator sequel, all right? This is like the real thing, all right? When the book of life is opened before Christ. The next one, what are we to think of hell, all right? What are we to think of hell? You know, hell shows up in cartoons, it shows up in jokes and off-color language, and, you know, people roll their eyes, but to Jesus, hell is real, and, and it should be to us as well, too, and I think we struggle with that at times. And so our first question emerges from the first few, few verses. So uh, let's read together uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those. Um, you can also pull up the YouVersion app. We'll have all the verses on the screen for you as well. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which is then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so there's a lot of questions here. We're going to explore the first, or the, the thousand years verses in a few minutes. But first, who is the devil or Satan, all right? So this, there's so many questions surrounding this, right? But the, he's an angelic enemy of God, a real personal being, Referred to in multiple ways throughout Scripture, lots of different titles. Uh, he's called the, the tempter, the wicked one, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, the ruler of the world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, Lucifer, the fallen angel, the dragon, and he's referred by that in Revelation seven times, and the serpent. Now, typically, we refer to him as, as the devil or Satan, and devil is from the Greek word diabolos or diabolos, and which literally means prone to slander, uh, a slanderous one, someone who accuses falsely. And the, the devil has been a false accuser, a slanderer. He, in fact, he attacked Jesus on earth attempting to keep Jesus from his mission, to keep Jesus from the cross through deception. They're trying to give him the easy way out. And he has always attacked any true follower of Jesus through temptation, through distraction. Uh, because here's what I've found in my life is that, you know, Satan can do nothing to take away your salvation, can do nothing. But what he can do 
is to steer us off course so that we are ineffective as followers of Jesus, right? And one of the ways he does that is through selfishness, where I I think my time and my resources are mine, and I use them for myself instead of using what God has given me to expand his kingdom, to point others to Christ, right? Or he distracts me, right? How, if for me, you know, I like to be like Jesus, and then I get up early to pray, because if I don't, something else will creep into my day. You know, I, I, if I don't pray in the morning, then something else will creep in. Or this will happen, you know, I'll get distracted when I'm praying. This might happen to you. I'm praying, wave it real quick, just, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh there's, there's like a spot over there on the counter. I'm just going to go wave it real quick, just so I don't forget about it later. And then I'm like, oh, man, somebody left, you know, this dish in the sink. I'm just going to wash this dish, and then I throw something away. And then I'm like, oh, who didn't take out the trash? I take out the trash. The next thing you know, I'm mowing my lawn. Totally forgot you know, that I was like praying. So like the Satan will use that to distract me. Now, Satan originally comes from the Hebrew word that refers to a traitor or an adversary, and he motivated Judas to betray Jesus. He kept Peter from initially understanding the cross in an attempt to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He hindered Paul from proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He inspired and inspires today the persecution of Christians. You know, he's continually attempting to obstruct the work of God and to keep unbelievers blind to the truth in Christ. He is extremely motivated to stop the kingdom of God. This devil went all the way down to Georgia to enter a fiddle competition to win just one soul, and he didn't even win. But ever since Satan, the devil, was defeated by Jesus' work on the cross, he knows his end has come, which has led him to relentlessly seek the defeat of the church and in our lives. It's kind of, I think of it like this, like somebody who knows they're getting fired on their job, all right, and they try to cause as much destruction and damage on the way out. They're going to bring everybody and everything down with them because they know that they're, that they're done, that their time is, has come. He's filled with, with hatred and fury towards God and towards us as Christ followers, which is why Revelation chapter 20 is a reason for celebration because Satan, the devil, is about to be completely done away with. But first, just as we read, there is a thousand-year period where he will be locked in what is called the abyss, the bottomless pit, a place for evil spirits. So, first of all, why a thousand years? Well, to answer that, we need to read a little bit more. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Now, this may be a literal thousand years, and some people believe that that's the case. Uh, Others think that the number 1,000, like other numbers in Revelation, is symbolic for another length of time, whatever that length of time may be. However long the time period, though, here's some things that we can say, is that following the Armageddon, Satan is bound. He's no longer able to deceive. 
no longer able to blind the minds of unbelievers, and Satan's power will be completely removed. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, will reign on rule on reign and rule on earth during this thousand-year period. Reigning with Jesus will be those who have survived the tribulation along with the past deceased believers who were brought back to physical life. Their bodies reunited with their spirits, uh, experiencing what is called the first resurrection, never, never to die again. Young people, if you're in here, read your Bible. It is wild, right? The stories in there are incredible. And, and it's easy here to not give weight to the reality of what I'm about to say, the reality of what this says. This can seem so f- unfamiliar that we just sort of write this all off as symbolic. But don't do that. I want you to think through the awesomeness of what is happening here. Literally, people who had died coming back to life. Now, precise details remain a mystery as to how the millennium in Christ, the millennium, the reign of Christ will be carried out and his, how his followers, all of that will be carried out. But, but there will be unbelievers who have lived through the time of Armageddon. Christ and his kingdom will rule over all nations, including those who are not Christ followers. And without Satan, Christ's reign here on earth will be one of complete righteousness and peace and joy. And from other scriptures, we start to understand that, that there's not going to be any more starvation, that, that food will be plentiful, that, that there is going to be physical health, there's going to be well-being, and we'll finally get to experience a world without evil. And not that I'm old, but as I get older, man, that's what my heart longs for, right? I start to become more aware of the brokenness of our world. The thousand years, however long, will be a taste of heaven, but why is this millennial period necessary, really? I mean, why not, just, why not just start heaven on earth then, right? Why not just fully go into fully establishing heaven on earth? There must be another reason for this thousand years, and there is. And for that reason, to know that reason, we need to read on. Revelation 20, verses 7, 10 says this. When the thousand years had come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go on to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had been deceived, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Joining the beast and the false prophet, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So plot twist, Satan is released from the abyss, and there is one final battle. Uh, Dr. Robert Mounts, he makes an observation about this, about Satan and, and people, which helps us to understand a little bit deeper the, the reason for the thousand years and the reason for the judgments to come. Dr. Mounts says this, he says, apparently... A thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plan, nor does a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness change people's basic tendency to rebel against their creator. So what's he saying here? He's saying this, that in terms of Satan, a thousand years, a thousand years, and he hasn't changed a bit and probably has become more infuriated plotting his backlash. 
And as the deceiver says that he goes out to the four corners of the earth, meaning the entire world, and, and to deceive the nations, to deceive unbelievers. And he forms an army against God's people. And it says that Gog and Magog are terminology in the book of Ezekiel that symbolize unbelievers who are opposed to God. And now in terms of people during this thousand years, it says many people, even after experiencing a taste of perfection, the perfect rule and reign of Christ with peace on earth and well-being, that, that they are still remain rebellious towards Jesus. And it shows just how deep our sin nature goes, just how deep human depravity can be. And, and we see how rebellious a human heart can be against God. And then there's a final battle, but not really, because God takes over and sends, sends fire from heaven, and Satan's armies are gone just like that. And the only one left is Satan. And now God deals with him in the same way he dealt with the Antichrist and the false prophet in chapter 19, into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, into hell, gone forever, that the devil will suffer in hell. That justice has been served, and yet there's more justice still to come. And so then I wonder, you know, the Apostle John, as he's writing these things and he's getting these visions, if his eyes just grow wider during this, as he sees what comes next in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 13, he says, I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according, according to their deeds. So what is the great white throne? Well, before we address this question, I'd like to simply review something. What makes someone right with God? What gives someone the right to be in heaven with God? Because the reality is that none of us here, not me nor you, nor anyone you have ever met, is good enough or has enough personal righteousness or rightness to stand in confidence before a holy and perfect God. You know, you may have gone to church your entire life. You may know the Bible from front to back. Um, you might have been baptized as a baby or, or confirmed or extremely religious. You may have been voted most likely to succeed in high school. Uh, you may, I mean, you may have Billy Graham as your neighbor. Uh, but, you know, you might, you might even be considered by yourself and by others to be a really good person. That, all those things might be true. But God says in Scripture that that's still not enough because our sin leaves us short of God's standard. And so far, so then we are all fall under God's judgment. Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has missed the mark. So what do we do? Well, we try to undo those things, right, by doing good things. We think that if we have more good than more bad in our lives, then, then we fall on the right side of the line. The problem is, is that good things don't erase bad things. Good deeds don't erase bad deeds. If you're in law enforcement, you know this. If somebody steals money, and then uses that money to buy a meal for someone at need, that doesn't make them innocent. Because they have still done something wrong. The good thing that they have done doesn't negate the wrong thing that they have done. And so that there's nothing left that we can do on our own to make up that shortfall. Nothing I can do to cover the gap between me and God, the gap between me and perfection. 
But you see, out of love, because God could have looked at our could have looked at us, looked at our world and everything that has gone wrong. And, he, and if he wanted to be just, he could have wiped his hands and left us to be on our own. But out of love, God looked at you and he looked at me and he sent his son Jesus to take the judgment and the punishment for your sin and for my sin on himself. So you and I would never have to experience that wrath, would never have to experience the penalty for our sin. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And when we individually confess our sin and put our trust in Jesus with a repentant heart, and that word repentant just means turning from our old ways, deciding to follow Christ, and we decide to follow Christ genuinely as a result of our faith in, in him and our heart to follow him, God declares us righteous, perfect, which means you are completely forgiven and free from all future judgment of sin. You have a right standing with God. Your name is recorded in the book of life. However, as a true Christ follower, even with your name in the book of life, you and I will experience what is known as the judgment seat of Christ, that we will receive rewards based upon our faithfulness and how we use what God has given us to love him and to love others, to impact this world for God. However, the great white throne judgment, what we read about is different. It's reserved for those who have spent their life pushing God away. And on this great white throne will be Jesus. And when we read about Jesus on this throne, it's not how we usually picture, God, picture Jesus as meek and mild, coming to serve to coming to serve and to be and to submit to the will of the Father and to go to the cross and to take a beating for our sins that was a one time thing. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the resurrected and glorified Jesus who sits on this throne. And it says that the nations flee out of fear. He is the book of life, but absent in the book of life are the names of those who are against God and against God's offer of salvation through Christ. And regardless of their position in life, that judgment will fall on everyone who has rejected God, who has rejected Jesus. The books will not lie. They will show everything. The people who have, who have denied or rejected Jesus and his salvation will be judged before the great white throne in accordance with how they live their lives apart from God. Justice will be perfectly served, flawlessly, completely, and the chapter ends like this. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, meaning that there was a physical death, and now, that there's, now there's a spiritual death. And anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which Jesus talked about as hell. So what are we to think of hell? What are we to think of this? You know, we love to hear Jesus as the miracle worker, as, as how Jesus healed the sick and cared for the poor. And we love to think of Jesus as all loving and all forgiving. Uh, we struggle to think with how a loving God could create or allow the reality of hell. It does not connect, right? We don't understand how if God is all loving, if God is forgiving, then how does this happen? It doesn't connect in our minds. But, but I want you to be aware that, that Jesus spoke freely of hell and he made a big deal about it. And frankly, Jesus would not have had to go to the cross if it wasn't for hell. Dorothy Sayers says this, One cannot get rid of hell without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. 
we have, people have fun with the idea of hell, and I, and I get it, you know. We try to minimize it because something's so awful that we cannot wrestle with in our mind, we try to minimize it. You know, some people have their own idea of what hell is like and often explain it in a way that minimizes the seriousness of it and puts a humorous spin on it. Because no one really wants to think about hell in the way that Jesus and the Bible refer to it. The imagery used in Scripture to, de- to, de- to describe hell is pretty startling. It says that it's a, it's a fiery furnace, an unquenchable thirst, a place where the worm does not die. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of no rest, of outer darkness. You know, with like heaven, it's impossible to describe hell without using imaginative language. You know, imagery and metaphors attempt to describe the, the indescribable. We can't really explain how good heaven is or how bad hell is. Said simply, hell is the place of the absence of God, a lack of God's presence. When Jesus used images of fire and of suffering, he was putting into human language something that we cannot understand with our human minds. The reality is that, he, that hell is real. There's just no easy way to say it that there is no second chance, that there is no purgatory, and that we must not think those who are sent to hell will develop a repentant heart because rebellion against God here continues unto rebellion against God in eternity. I mean, I think, you know, the reality is the unloving thing for God to do would to make those who have chosen to push him away, who have chosen to go against him for, the, for, the, for, the, for all of their lives, to force them to be in his presence for all of eternity. God will allow those who are walking away from him to continue to walk away from him forever. Hell is God's final answer to the act of insurrection against the creator of the universe, the God who created you to, to, for a loving relationship with him, who gave his son's life for us so that relationship could be stored, the God who is literally keeping you alive right now, the God whose air you are breathing we don't say to that God, hey, you can go kick, kick rocks. I'm going to be the God of my life and then not expect there to be punishment for that. If there was no consequence for those who rejected Jesus, if there was no punishment for those who have done evil, that we don't serve a loving God. We serve an apathetic God, a God who just doesn't care. A lifetime spent saying no thank you, God, will end with no God. C.S. Lewis says this perfectly. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done, and all that are in hell choose it. In the end, God will have rendered perfect and unfailing justice. You know, I was thinking about you know, this book of Revelation and really the Bible as a whole and how it can leave us with so many more questions Sometimes questions that cannot be answered because we don't have complete access to God's mind. Like I said, we have trouble connecting this, but, but it reminds me of the passage in the Bible in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says, and my thoughts are not like your thoughts, God says. There says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything that you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so what does that say to us? That just because we don't have the answer doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. Just because we can't understand everything that God does doesn't make them not true. We stand on dangerous God, or we stand on dangerous ground when we tell God, when we tell God what he should and shouldn't do, how he should and shouldn't judge, and who he should and shouldn't judge. 
Who are we to tell the creator that? Like I said, there are some things in Scripture that are mysterious and that we don't wrap our heads around, but there are some things that are also black and white. And so just some things that I do want to make clear, some things that we can do. And the first one is to be sure. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. I'm reminded of that of every time I drive to Sandusky and I see that incredible billboard, John 14, 6. Be sure you have put your trust in Christ and declared before God your heart to follow Jesus. That genuine decision alone will give you the righteousness of Christ and place your name in the book of life. So be sure. The next one is to be faithful. If you're already a follower of Jesus, your name is in that book of life, and that's reason to celebrate. But, but be aware that the books will open one day, and, and you will be recorded, rewarded according to your faithfulness of Christ, how you use what God has given you to impact this world for his kingdom, for him. And the last one is to be clear. As a follower of Jesus, it's up to each one of us to make an impact in, the, in our circles of influence, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, our teammates, classmates, to understand that grace and forgiveness comes through Jesus alone and that we should show that through our actions, but we should also be clear with our words. Romans 10, 13, and 14 reminded me of this, and it's the verse that, that God used to call me into to preaching the gospel. It says this, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear about them unless God, someone sends them? God is sending each one of us into our circles to tell others with our words and our actions about Jesus. We need to tell our story. What has God done in your life to tell his story so that others may decide for themselves to turn to Jesus and be joined in the book of life? Did you know this, that 90% of people will come to faith in Jesus through a friend, through a trusted friend or a family member, that very few of them will sit in a church service like this and hear the good news proclaimed by a guy like me who they don't know and place their faith in, in Christ. So it's up to us, church. We get to be a part of Jesus bringing others into salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, so many hard truths to wrestle with, God. We thank you for this opportunity to hear them. Thank you for this opportunity, God, to, to read them, that you have given us your word, God, so that they don't have to remain a mystery to us. God, you are not trying to hide from us. God, you are trying to make the truth known. And I pray that today, God, that you have worked in the hearts of everyone being able to hear this morning to be able to hear your words and to know them and to understand them. And God, that we would walk away from today being willing to make clear the truth of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. To close our service, would you all stand and we will read the benediction together. Revelation verses one, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. We'll see you next week.